Well, good morning, Westside. It is, uh, it's great to see. It's great to be back with you. I've been gone, not out of town, but from uh, this place for the last couple of Sundays, dropping in on some ministries that we help launch uh, over the last number of years. Last Sunday, I was at Christ City Church, which is a church plant out of us in 2013 and had a chance to speak there, hang out with Brett, who gives leadership to that ministry. And then two weeks ago, had a chance to drop in on Tri-City, our campus, our joined together campus, that unique partnership, the coming together of three different ministries to plant a campus that serves as a campus for each of those ministries. And so two weeks ago, I was there and doing great stuff under the leadership there of Matt Glezos. But it's good to be back with you. My joy to be with you again, um, uh, along with Tiff, want to welcome you, especially those of you that are guests, visitors, coming in with family or what have you. It's great to have you with us. Uh, we make it our practice to teach the Bible here on Sunday mornings, and so with that in mind, I invite you to take out your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're looking at verses 1 to 6 today. So find that in your Bibles, and we'll start walking through that momentarily. But before we do, let's pray together, and then we'll start walking through this great and wondrous text. Father, I thank you for, I thank you for the things that um, over the years of this ministry we've, we've been able to participate in corporately. Uh, allowing us, you allowing us uh, the opportunity to, uh, to, to use, to manifest those gifts that you've given us by way of your spirit for the sake of your kingdom and our joy. Uh, for we experience things that we would never experience when we serve, when the spirit, you Holy Spirit, work through us. And I thank you for the fruit, the fruit that's taken place in this ministry corporately and in our lives individually. We give you praise for it. And we pray for those ministries that we have a, a relationship with, a close relationship with, like Tri-City and Christ City. But we think of our our North Shore campus moving towards a standalone status. So we pray for them as they gather and as they move towards becoming the Shore Church in April. We pray for your blessing and, and much grace, continued grace on them. And we think of Reality Vancouver and Chris and his leadership. We pray for, we pray for him and we pray for other churches that, that are friends in ministry. We pray for your blessing on them as they gather today and as they look ahead to this to these next couple of weeks, especially when there seems to be a greater openness and, and a willingness for people who don't normally darken the doorway of a church building any other time of the year. But for whatever reason, there's an openness this, this time of the year. And so we pray that there'd be much fruit coming out of that. Every church that loves you is not ashamed of the gospel. I pray that you'd fill, fill them to the rafters this, this season, I pray. For the, again, the glory of your name, for the building of your kingdom, and for our joy in getting to participate in, in it. And Father, I also pray for your guidance as we walk through the word that you've given us by, by way of the Spirit. Please, please guide us in this time, uh, fill this time, uh, and, and do what you need to do in this time. And I pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you believe, by the way, that it's this time of the year already? I mean, are you ready for it? I mean, are you, you know what I'm talking about? You know when I talk about this time of the year? You know what I'm talking about, right? You know what season it is? It's, it's the season. It's the season for seasonal affective disorders. That's what I'm talking about. I don't know what you had in, in mind. SAD for short, S-A-D. This is a thing. 
This is actually a thing. You can call it light deprivation season. It's actually a thing. It's actually a malady that many, that many people suffer with. They get to this time of the year where, where darkness sort of overwhelms them because it's kind of dark all the time, right? Especially in this, uh, this city, the city in which we live. It's sometimes referred to as winter depression. And it's common for many. And for some, it becomes very serious and debilitating the cause for it, for it, and you can probably figure this out already, not, not wanting to be over, overly simplistic, is a lack of light. You get up in the dark, you get ready for work in the dark, you drive to work in the dark, you sit in an office that doesn't have a window, you get back in your car in the dark, you drive home in the dark, and you eat in the dark, right? Your whole life is dark. And, it, it, and, you, and it's terrible, right? But you, you always think, well, Saturday's coming. I'll get outside on Saturday. It'll be great. But again, I remind you of where you live. You live here, man. And every Saturday, it's raining sideways. Like in Vancouver, Vancouver's the only place where you have to hold your umbrella like that because it's coming in sideways, man. And you do that day after day, week after week after week. Instead of hanging outside, you go to matinees. Instead of going outside, you play settlers on Saturday inside to candlelight. That's what you do. That's what we do. And again, we do it week after week after week. And all of a sudden, one day in the middle of winter, you wake up and you go, I'm feeling depressed. I'm feeling depressed. And the sweatpants that I've been wearing for the last three months, they're starting to get tight because I'm not doing anything, right? Just sitting around eating bonbons all day in the dark. If this is you, you're not alone. The connection between darkness and depression is actually well documented. Too much darkness, in fact, can lead to depression. Neuroscientists at the University of Pennsylvania kept rats in the dark for six weeks. That's what neuroscientists do. I didn't even know rats hung out in the light. But they took rats and they kept them in the dark for six weeks. After the six weeks, the rats not only exhibited depressive behavior. Again, I don't know what that looks like in a rat. But they expressed this depressive behavior. But they also suffered damage in the brain. In brain regions known to be underactive in humans during depression. The fact is, we need light. This reality has led to something called bright light therapy. Perhaps some of you are familiar with this. Bright light therapy is thought to affect brain chemicals linked to mood and sleep and help lessen the effects of SAD. I mean, for example, just look at this guy. Look how happy he is. You know what I mean? I mean, that guy's happy, right? There's the light therapy. He's got his coffee. He's on the phone smiling. Like, who smiles on the phone? But this guy does. I mean, look at this girl. Look at her. I mean, that's unbelievable. I mean, none of us have ever been that happy, ever. I mean, that's what, that's what light does. Light, light affects us that way. Light cures the debilitating effects of darkness. That's what it does. Light brings life. Light brings hope. Light brings vitality. Light brings happiness. We're beginning a Christmas series today called Light Has Come. A title we've chosen for it sums up what this season is truly about. A time to celebrate the great truth that, that light, that, 
the light of life has come into the world. In fact, in John's telling, so the New Testament is made up, starts with four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In John, the last of those four, in his telling of the Christmas story, the first Christmas, he doesn't mention the baby Jesus at all. He doesn't mention baby Jesus. He doesn't mention the shepherds. He doesn't mention the wise men. He doesn't mention Mary or Joseph at all. He describes the first Christmas this way in John chapter 1 verse 9. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. That's his Christmas. Lights come into the world. In fact, Jesus affirms this idea when speaking of himself in John 8, stating, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light, life. So that's what Christmas is about, which makes sense, by the way. For bringing light into darkness has has been the MO. It's what, been, what God's been up to from the very beginning. If you go back to the very first page of the Bible, the very first couple of sentences tell us that darkness was over the deep. That's how it begins. There's darkness over the deep, but then God cuts through the silence and he declares, let there be light. With light being the very first thing that God calls good. And then just a couple of sentences later, we read that God separated the light from the darkness. Don't miss that. Don't miss that God chooses to introduce himself this way. He could introduce, have introduced himself in many different ways. But he chooses to introduce himself as one who breaks into darkness and separates the darkness from the light that he brings, that he calls, that he calls forth. So the fact that God introduces himself this way in the Bible is more than just a piece of information. It's his, it's his modus operandi. It's his MO. This is what God is about. God brings light into darkness and separates the two. And understandably so, for the two have nothing in common. Darkness is associated with things like sin and chaos. Darkness is associated with Satan, who masquerades as an angel of light. Darkness is also connected with death and and spiritual ignorance and divine judgment. Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 8 defines or describes hell as being a place of outer darkness. In contrast, light is associated with all that is good and true. Tellingly, heaven, at the end of the book... So fast forward, drop over 64 other books and go to book 66. In the last chapter, we have a description of the new heaven. And it's described as a place that has no night. As mentioned, Jesus describes himself as the light of the world, but also associated with light is the word of God. It it gives light to our paths. That's what it does. It's also associated with God's blessing and God's people. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, the light of the world, says to his disciples, you're the light of the world. With just a couple of verses later, describing us as being like lamps. Lamps that can't be hidden, shouldn't be covered. That's us. So we follow the light of the world, but we are light as well. That's Jesus' point. Called thereafter to 
walk in the light. John in his first epistle in the fifth verse of chapter one says we are to walk in the light. Paul adds in Ephesians chapter five that we are to expose darkness. We follow the light, walk in the light, and expose darkness. Sound familiar? It should. It's what God has been doing from the very beginning. So we are called to carry out the same activity of the one who created us in his image. We are to do what God does. That's our role. Over the next few Sundays, we are going to shed light on light. We're going to talk about light a lot and consider the topic from a variety of angles, beginning today with our call to be messengers or ministers of light. Which brings us to our text, one of my all-time favorite texts. And I know I say that a lot, but, and it's always true when I say that. But it's really true today. Let's read verses 1 to 6. It begins with the word therefore, so just stop. What we need to understand before moving on is that what Paul is about as we drop in midstream in this second letter to the Corinthian church, that he's defending his ministry. Uh, He's spending time because this church is calling into question his validity or his ability, his qualifications of being an apostle. They have in mind someone bigger, better, more eloquent than Paul. They question him. And so he's spending time defending himself. Spends, in fact, a lot of time defending himself in the book of 2 Corinthians. But that's what the therefore points back to. He, 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 he's defending himself in terms of the validation for what God has given him. That therefore will take us back to chapter 3 as we move forward. But just, just know that at this stage. Therefore, he writes... Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, going all the way back to the beginning has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. In defending his ministry, a ministry of light, Paul reveals several aspects, several aspects of it that are true of our ministry of light too. Paul is defending his, but what we see in his defense is true of our ministry as messengers of light too. Now, before I go on and start giving you the four that I'm going to give you, some of you need to be convinced that you are a minister, that you have a ministry. You are, though, if you're a follower of Jesus. You are a minister, and you do have a ministry. It may not be in a place like this where you get paid to be a pastor or a deacon or a director of something, but we all have a ministry. In fact, the role of the church is to train up, to equip the people of the church for works of ministry. 
That's why Peter in his first epistle talks about the church as being a priesthood. We're all priests if you're a follower of Jesus. Your ministry may be to the person who lives on the other side of the fence on your block. That may be your ministry. Or your family or, or, or people that you hang out with at work or, or just those happenstance meetings you have at this place or that place. But we all have a ministry. A ministry to share the good news, the gospel, the entirety of the story of God by way of Jesus. That's our ministry. So like Paul, we have a ministry, and Paul reveals some things very important about his, like I said, that are true of ours. What we need to see, here's the first. This ministry that we have is a gift of mercy. This shows up in verse 1. Where Paul writes, you can see it there, having this ministry by the mercy of God. It's a gift. It's a gift given by God, appropriate language at this gift-giving time of the year. God gifted us the ministry as an act of mercy, but why? Why why are our ministries given this way? Why must they come this way? Meaning they've been gifted to us. Why? As an act of mercy. Mercy. Well, the answer to that is found as you double back, like I said we would, to chapter 3, where Paul writes, and just look at it in verse 5 and verse 6, at least the first half of it. Paul writes, not that we are sufficient. We're not sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. So there it is. Our ministry is a gift of mercy, and it must be a gift of mercy because, number one, we aren't sufficient. We're not sufficient in ourselves. And therefore, our competency comes from God who has made us sufficient. Just consider that. What makes us sufficient? God. For this ministry of light that he's given us. So however helpful our ingenuity is or our education or our experience or our gift set or our personality or our courage, however good they are, however helpful they prove to be as God grants them, because what do we have that we have not received? As God grants them and as God chooses to work through them, ultimately our sufficiency doesn't come from them, but God instead. instead. But let that sink in. You're sufficient (coughs) for what God calls you to. Let me just say that one more time. You're sufficient for the task at hand. That God never calls you to something he won't equip you for. If he calls you, he will resource you. So whatever that is in your life and my life that God impresses upon us, gives us opportunity to do, he will equip us for it. He will will make us sufficient. Him making us sufficient. Just let that sink sink in. It should give us encouragement. It should give give us courage. But a second question sort of tied into this is, why can't the competency come, that is ours by way of our training or experience or education, make us sufficient for ministry? Why can't your seminary degree make you sufficient for ministry? Or your 20 years as a pastor? Or you're 12 years overseas in a missions agency, for example. Why can't that make you sufficient for ministry? Well, the answer to that takes us again back to chapter 3, where Paul answers in verses 7 and 8, 
that question. Now, if the ministry of death, what is that? Ministry of Moses, the ministry of the law. It's a ministry of death because Moses brought the law. What does the law do? It brings death. Why? Because we can't live it out. So it becomes this tremendous burden. That's why Jesus had to come and fulfill the law. Law has to be fulfilled. We couldn't do it in our own strength. Jesus did it for us and he gave us his perfection. It's wondrous. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought down to an, <coughs> to an end, will not, verse 8, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So there's our answer. We don't have competency in our experience or training or what have you because it's a ministry of the Spirit. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a flesh-based ministry. Even though we deal with the flesh, work with people, flesh people, it's not a ministry of the flesh. In other words, it's a spirit-based, spirit-infused, and spirit-reliant ministry. More on this later. But the great thing about this fact that Paul's sufficiency comes from God and it's a spirit-based a spirit ministry is why he says in verse 1 that he does not lose hope. Why? Because it doesn't rest on him. Same with us. It doesn't rest on us. When we think it does rest on us, we fall prey to one of two extremes. Excuse me while I blow my nose. One extreme has been hinted at already, so I just want to make sure we're clear here. When we think it rests on us, two extremes, both bad, both negative result. One is what Paul inferred to already, losing heart. We can lose heart. That's one. The other is, opposite extreme, we get really cocky and arrogant. Those are the two extremes. So things don't go well, I lose heart. I have churches that are asking me whether I'm an apostle or not. I'm not going to lose heart because my sufficiency and call comes from God. He's the one who qualified me. Or I kill it. People coming from everywhere, filling the rafters with people. We think that's because of our gift set. We get cocky and we get arrogant. Those are the two extremes. But they're birthed out of the same place. A place of self-reliance and sufficiency. So that's number one. That's what we need to know about our ministry by way of Paul's ministry. It's a gift of mercy. Here's a second. Our ministry calls us to proclaim the entirety of the gospel. I know we've read it already, but if you wouldn't mind, put your eyes back into verses 2 and 3. Where Paul writes, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In other words, what Paul is saying is, I've held nothing back. I've torn the veil off the the story of Jesus. I haven't hidden anything. Their consciences are clean. If it's veiled, it's because they're perishing. And we'll get to why it's veiled later. But that's what Paul is saying. He's shared the entirety of the gospel story. That's what an unveiling is, by the way. And I think we know that. 
and an unveiling exposes something. When businesses want to introduce a, a new a product, they host an unveiling. The big moment in any wedding takes place when the bride comes down. She's got the veil, right? And you get that moment where she pulls the veil back, and there you see her. She's wondrous. This makeup job you've never considered before. This is great. Look at those eyes. I didn't know you had eyes like that. Where are those eyes? They're coming off in a minute, right? They're coming off in a minute. But you have this unveiling, and the, the groom is fired up. Here's my, here's my, I'm a, I need to kiss you, right? That's what happens. That's what an unveiling is. And what Paul is telling us using this language is that we have this call to pull back the veil, And display the beauty and the wonder and the grandeur and the glory of the gospel message. To reveal the mystery, get this, to reveal the mystery of a message that angels long to hear. Angels in heaven going, how's this going to work? Prophets of old wanting to know how it would work out. How does this come to pass? This mystery that Paul writes of in 1 Timothy, this mystery of godliness that is answered in the coming of Jesus. He says, pull it back, man. Pull back the veil, expose it all. That's what I've done. I haven't hidden anything. That's why Paul states in Acts chapter 20, verse 27, when he's saying farewell to the Ephesian elders, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Before moving on, In looking at verses 2 and 3, specifically in this text, my sense is that Paul uses the language he does to address a couple of common temptations as ministers of the word. I think temptations that are common for you, common for me, common at the time of Paul, that's why he addresses it. One is to not proclaim all of it. That's a temptation. To pick and choose. To pick and choose parts that we like or feel more comfortable with instead. Oftentimes this means that we don't hit some of the harder aspects of the message of Jesus. We don't don't talk about sin. We don't talk about hell. We don't talk about judgment. Even though Jesus is called the Savior, we don't want to talk about what we need to be saved from. So we hide that. We don't unveil it. We cover it. We keep it covered. But for some... It can mean that they downplay the scandalous nature of God's grace. There are people in the church that veil that as well. And it is scandalous. God's grace is nothing short of scandalous. And if you don't believe it's scandalous, I would just encourage you to go back, read many of the parables, and see the reaction of the people to them. The reaction is, are you kidding me? If I start working at four, I get paid the same amount as the guy who started at nine? Scandalous. You're telling me the father ran out to the son and kissed him? Scandalous. That's what the grace of God is. Some people forget this aspect, some people forget that aspect. But when we do, we veil, it. We, we veil it up. Paul writes that when we downplay either, and you can see it in verse 2, we tamper with God's word. That word tamper was used at the time to speak of winemakers who diluted their product. This is what we do. We water it down. 
We water down this great vintage that is the gospel of Jesus and we turn it into a cheap $7 bottle of yellowtail. You know what I mean? Yellowtail. You shouldn't know what I mean. Any, any wine that you can buy at a Chevron in Blaine, you shouldn't drink. But that's what we do. So that's one temptation. Another temptation is to rely on deceptive practices. What Paul refers to as disgraceful, underhanded ways in verse 2 as well. Now, what is this? Well, perhaps the best way to explain it is doing anything that seeks to build your name and your ministry over God's kingdom and God's glory. It's bait and switch stuff. It's doing that which promotes yourself or lines your pocketbook or seeks to make people like you more. It's also promising things that the gospel doesn't promise. Very common. Come to Jesus, your marriage will be better. Come to Jesus, you'll always be healthy. Come to Jesus, you'll make more cash. Come to Jesus, your kids will be great. Gospel doesn't promise that. Now, do I think the gospel can make your marriage better? Sure. I also think bringing the gospel into a marriage can divide a family. So what happens if you bring that gospel into your marriage and it divides your marriage? What happens if the gospel that you receive and take in causes you to have to leave your work because of their practices? What if the gospel does that? What if the gospel you bring into your family divides your family and your, your, your siblings or your kids or what have you don't want anything to do with you anymore? What happens if the gospel does that? What happens if you don't get healthy? So I think it's people building up ministries or just building up their own life by promising something that the gospel doesn't promise. And in doing that, here's the ironic aspect of it. We don't bring the greatest aspect of the gospel to them. And that is Christ's likeness changing becoming more like Jesus that comes by way of having to go through things like that. And so we make health and money and harmony the thing when God says, I have so much more for you than that. And we settle. I think that's part of this cunning, underhanded way of doing things that Paul is referring to here. Again, a question before moving on. Why wouldn't Paul shrink back? Why wouldn't Paul shrink back from declaring the entirety of the gospel? Why wouldn't he? Well, I think one answer is faithfulness. There's no doubt about that. He's being faithful. I think that's part of it. He also is fighting against self-reliance. If Paul doesn't see himself as being sufficient... He needs to bring something to the game that will help him in that. And so he brings the gospel. But, but tied into that is Paul's understanding of what the gospel is. So why does he share the whole thing? Well, because of what the gospel is. What is the gospel? Romans 1.16. Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why, Paul? Because it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then also to the Greek. How powerful is the gospel? Powerful enough to save us for eternity. That's how powerful. 
It's powerful enough to transfer, transfer us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the sun. It's powerful enough to take down whatever giant stands in our way. That's how powerful. Speaking of giants, this is Brock Lesnar. That's Brock Lesnar. Unbelievable beast of a man. Six foot three, 286 pounds of granite. That's Brock Lesnar. He wrestled, he wrestled in college, then he went on to fight in the MMA and UFC, some WWE stuff now. I mean, he is just, he's a mountain of a man. That's Brock Lesnar. Tough, tough as nails, Brock Lesnar. Big, big Brock Lesnar. Would get scared to death to walk into a ring with that guy. That guy. But what is it Brock Lesnar came up to me and said, you and me, death match tomorrow. That would be bad news for Brock Lesnar. No, no, it wouldn't be bad news for Brock Lesnar. I mean, look at Brock. He has two pecs per side. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I have one per side, and, and they point south. You know what I mean? You know, they look like pecs. They're just droopier. Like, if that guy, I would stand no chance. No chance. But what we said, death match. Death match tomorrow, Funk. Let's go. I say, no, I don't want a death match tomorrow with you, with you, Brock, tomorrow. But what happens if Brock said, you can bring in a weapon? Oh, okay, I'm listening. What kind of weapon? What kind of weapon, Brock, can I bring into the ring with you? Well, how about a sword? A sword? That's a unique weapon to pick, Brock. What kind of sword? A sharp two-edged sword. A sharp two-edged sword into the battle with you? It's not good enough. Well, how about a sharp two-edged sword that's actually alive? Like it's living and active. Huh. Well, if we do have a battle, Brock, with your four pecs, I would be silly to walk into a battle like that without bringing that weapon, wouldn't I? Westside, when we said yes to Jesus, we enlisted into a battle. A battle that we in ourselves are not equipped for. We don't have what it takes. The enemy is just too big and the task too daunting, but we've been given a weapon. A weapon that Paul calls the sword of the spirit. And the writer of Hebrews describes as not being just words on a page, not just ink on a piece of paper, but as living and active. It's alive. And sharper than a two-edged sword. Not as sharp as, sharper than a two-edged sword. That's the weapon at our disposal. How silly, how stupid would it be to go into battle without it? Well, the answer is far more stupid than getting into the ring with Brock Lesnar with far more important and eternal implications on the line, to say the least. I'm actually somewhat embarrassed to make the comparison. Sadly, however, too many of us choose to fight on our own and wonder why we get beaten the way we do. Some of us are embarrassed of the weapon. So that's why Paul unveils the gospel in its fullness and entirety, because He's insufficient without it, but with it, he can take down giants. We can too. 
Here's a third aspect of those four regarding the ministry of Paul and ours too. The ministry calls us to proclaim the gospel because of what it brings. What does the gospel bring? Number one, you can see it in verse four and six of our text. It brings light. It brings light. And what does light do? Light shines into the darkest. Darkness. It, it shines into dark places. That's what light does. In other words, what light does is it brings insight. It answers questions. It, it gives hope. It gives meaning. It gives us a sense of what's going on in this crazy world with nukes over there and tweets over there and groping over there, shooting over there. It's like, help us. That's what light does. It goes into those hidden places. Like I said, those dark places, those places that we, we don't even know exist. That's what light does. It goes there. It illuminates those places, places that must be gone into. And when it does, what does light do when it goes to those places? It heals. And it removes what the darkness has brought. This should fire us up as proclaimers. It should motivate us. We have... At our disposal, that which can change a person's life now and secure it forever thereafter. That's what God has given us. But not only does the gospel bring light, it also brings life. Just look back to verse 6 of chapter 3. In verse 6 of chapter 3, it says, Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit, what does the Spirit do? It gives life. Unlike the law given to Moses, which brought death, that came by letter or chisels, chisel marks on a couple of stone tablets, we have something that is transmitted by way of the Spirit. It doesn't bring death, it brings life. That's why we should share it. Light, life, and finally, we should proclaim it because the gospel is Jesus, and he brings both. Just one more time, verses 5 and 6. Such sweet verses. For what we proclaim, Paul writes, is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. That should be our life verse. If you don't have a life verse, pick that one. We don't proclaim ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Like that should guide how we do social media. That. I don't want to proclaim myself, but Jesus and not just Jesus, Jesus Christ, but not just Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ as Lord. He's, he's my Lord. That's why I live, Paul says. With ourselves as your servants. So we serve others. Why? For Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He brings both. It's really important in our Western and cerebral world that we remember that the gospel is not a, as much a what as a who, and that who is Jesus. Jesus is light and life. In a verse that sums this up, again going to the gospel of John, John writes in verse 4, In Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men and women. I need to wrap up. So what have we seen thus far? About this ministry of Paul that is true of ours. Well, first, our ministry, a ministry of light, is a gift of mercy. 
And it has to be because we're not sufficient, and it has to be because it's a spirit-based ministry. Second, our ministry calls us to proclaim the gospel in its entirety. And when we do, we can conquer giants. And third, our ministry calls us to proclaim the gospel because of what it brings. It brings light, it brings life, it brings Jesus. I'll end with a fourth. The ministry needs to be, our ministry needs to be undergirded with prayer and total dependence on the Spirit. I get that at verse 4. Let me read it one more time. In their case, the God of the world, that is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This, this takes us full circle. This reminds us of why our dependence for our ministries can't rest on our own competence. The reason is we have an enemy, Satan himself who works hard to keep as many people as possible from coming to Jesus as he can. God came and he spoke light into the darkness. Satan, this masquerader of light, seeks to keep them in it. That's his MO. And again, most often he does it by masquerading as an angel of light. He dupes us. He blinds us. And that is why the gospel is veiled. It wasn't veiled because Paul didn't share all of it. It was veiled because Satan was blinding the minds of those hearing it. And therefore, we need to remember that not only don't we wage war against the flesh, but that we can't wage war by the flesh. We can't win a spiritual battle by natural means. All the experience and all the ingenuity in the world won't remove the blinders that Satan has put on the lost. Only the Spirit of God can in response to our fervent prayers and the proclamation of the gospel. Only the Spirit of God can can do that. And therefore, we must be fervent prayers. And we must be committed to unveiling the entirety of the gospel. And the reason for that is because Because of, what, because of what we read in verse 3. People are perishing. People were perishing then. People perish now. And shame on us if we don't pray for them and we don't share the story with them. That's our call. And it doesn't rest on us. I get that. But remember what Paul stated in his farewell address to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20? He says, the blood of all men and all women is not on me. Why, Paul? Why is it not on you, Paul? Because I shared the whole counsel of God. He didn't simply, the blood of all men and all women is not on me because, you know, at the end of the day, God's going to do what God's got to do. No, he said, it's not on me because I shared it all. I shared it all. And they constantly prayed and proclaimed and went out. That's why it's not on me. That's our call. That's our ministry. And I get the fear in it. I get the trepidation. I get the hesitation. I get the pit in the stomach feel. I get not wanting to be shunned. I get it. If that's you, I, me and you, baby, we're together in that. 
And that's why we need to pray. We need to pray for courage. We need to pray that Spirit fills us, emboldens us, fills our mouth with words, goes before us, prepping hearts and minds. We need to invite, we need to invite people to Christmas, Christmas Eve. We need to invite, we need to share. I close with what one commentator said coming out of verse 4, writing, Blindness is not a problem unless there's something to see. And Westside there is. And his name is Jesus. The light of the world. Let's pray together. And so, Holy Spirit, give us courage, I pray. Courage to share and invite. Confess our shame at times, our hesitancy at times fear at times. Forgive us of that and embolden us. Embolden us. Fill us. Give us that power that we need, that sufficiency that only comes from you. Help us so that we would be faithful ministers of the ministry that you've given each of us. And I pray that ministry would take place today. That Holy Spirit, you would shine into dark places today. That there would be people today that would see the glory of God in the face of Jesus today. That new creation, new creation would be brought forth today by way of your word. No more light deprivation at all, but receiving the light of Jesus. So I pray for those who don't know you, that they would come to know you today. And those of us who do, that this would be a sweet time of ministry as well. A time where we return to you, perhaps, confessing things, repenting of things, um, bringing requests to you. It is just a great time. Whatever, whatever needs to happen, I pray, takes place. And I pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.